Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to our moderator today, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Breast Cancer in Younger Women, New Treatment Options. And um, today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology and made possible through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And now we have um, quite a few participants of the program today. We have over 350 participants on the program today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants. I'm just going to read off the countries that are participating today. Argentina, Bahrain, Canada, France, Germany, India, Israel, Peru, Sweden, United Kingdom, and the territory of the Virgin Islands. So we really have, it's a global call. And it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Jennifer Matro. Dr. Matro is Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, co-leader breast disease team, Division of Hematology Oncology, UC San Diego, Comprehensive, Cancer, Comprehensive Breast Health Team. And Dr. Matro will be addressing an overview of breast cancer in younger women, including diagnosing, staging, ERPR, and HER2 status, precision medicine, sequencing of treatment, biomarker testing, and genetic testing, including BRCA testing. Also, what informs treatment decisions and options, understanding your pathology report. Next, updates on clinical trial questions to ask your healthcare team. Next, biomarkers are tools that help determine what types of treatments are indicated, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, targeted treatments. And lastly, preventing and managing treatments, side effects, symptoms, discomfort, neuropathy, and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Matro. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm really glad to be here speaking on this really important topic. Uh, to so many of you from around the world. Um, so I am going to do a, a very broad overview of breast cancer in younger women. I'm going to address all of the topics that you mentioned, although I may go a little bit out of order just to try to keep it in kind of a um, more typical um, form, format of understanding. So just starting with an overview of breast cancer in younger women, uh, only 4% of patients diagnosed with breast cancer in the United States are under 40 years old. Um, it's, breast cancer is just less common in younger women. Um, also important considerations are that younger women under 40 are not routinely screened for breast cancer. Uh, and this is largely uh, the, the main reasons are because breast cancer is less common, but also mammogram is just not as good at detecting cancers in really young women because their breasts are so much denser. Uh, and mammograms have, um, are less effective at detecting cancer uh, in denser breast tissue. Uh, they're much more effective in more fatty breast tissue, which occurs as women age. So most of the cancers that we see in younger women are going to be detected either by a self-exam or by a clinical exam performed by a physician. Um, most, uh, in general, all, most breast cancers diagnosed are going to be hormone positive, um, but in younger women, there is a, a greater proportion of um, cancers that are uh, triple negative and HER2 positive. So what uh, goes into the diagnosis and staging of breast cancer, um, first, uh, the way that, that women are, are detected to have breast cancer is they, they have a mammogram or an ultrasound. Um, to confirm the mass, 
um, and that is biopsied and will uh, confirm if it's a breast cancer. Um, the information that we get from when we when we get the pathology report is we see um, is it are the, is the cancer expressing estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, or uh, HER2 proteins? So estrogen and progesterone are hormone receptors. If they're overexpressed on the cancer cells, then that tells us that the hormones that are naturally circulating in the woman's body feed the cancer cells. Um, cancers that are estrogen and progesterone positive tend to be a bit more favorable. Um, they, they tend to be uh, more slower growing than cancers that are HER2 positive. HER2 is a protein that we see on about 20% of breast cancers. And when that's positive, it basically signals into the cell to keep dividing. So the marker of one of the higher risk breast cancers, but one, um, we have very effective medications now to treat HER2 positive breast cancers. And so um, women tend to do very well if they have HER2 positive breast cancer. If the ER, PR, and HER2, all three of those are, are negative, that's where we get the term triple negative breast cancer. And triple negative breast cancers are not going to benefit from hormone-based medications, nor will they benefit from HER2-directed medications. So once you know, in general, that, that there is a cancer, most women, uh, young women, will get a breast MRI. Uh, this is to help determine the extensive cancer in the breast, uh, also evaluates the lymph nodes. Um, the downside of an MRI is that they're, there's, uh, they have a false positive rate that's not insignificant. What that means is that you, the, the MRI may show things, uh, some things may show up on the MRI that require either additional imaging or perhaps even additional biopsies. Um, and many of those biopsies will come back negative, but um, for younger women with dense breasts, the, the benefits of the MRI for adequate staging to, to see the true extent of the cancer uh, is worthwhile. Um, so most women, that's, once they have their breast imaging, that's where they'll stop in terms of the, the staging. But if there is uh, involvement of the lymph nodes, um, this would be seen on mammogram or MRI and would be generally confirmed with a biopsy of the lymph node then additional systemic staging may be indicated, and that could include something like a PET scan or a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and a bone scan uh, to make sure that the cancer hasn't spread beyond the breast. Um, there are many things now that go into treatment decisions, um, how we sequence treatments, what the treatment options are. These are things that um, are routinely done just uh, and that we see on a pathology report and then more and more we're seeing things like uh, precision medicine and biomarkers and spe special genetic type testing that are informing treatment. So starting with a pathology report, um, we might see a tumor size or a tumor grade. Uh, the tumor grade uh, is one, two, or three and that tends to correlate with risk. So a low grade, a grade one is a lower risk cancer, a less aggressive type cancer, or a grade three or high grade tumor. Uh, the cells are more rapidly dividing. Um, and that often correlates with things like a triple negative breast cancer or a hormone positive breast cancer, where triple negative breast cancers tend to be higher grades. Hormone positive cancers tend to be more lower or intermediate grade, although we do see variability. We also see something, uh, you might see a term on your pathology report called lymphovascular invasion. So this means that the, either the biopsy or the, the surgery specimen also removed um, some lymphatic and blood vessel channels, uh, and we can see cancer cells kind of poking into those lymphatics or into the blood vessels. So that doesn't mean the cancer has spread, um, but it is a, uh, an indicator that the, that's a risk that there may have been some cells that could have gotten uh, into those uh, lymphovascular channels, uh, and that's uh, something that we that we take into consideration when evaluating someone's risk. Um, and then we look at lymph nodes. Uh, the number of lymph nodes that are involved is very important. That impact stage, and uh, we also take some uh, look at something called the key sixty seven, which is 
a marker of turnover of the cancer cells, similar to tumor grade, um, although not exactly the same. And that can impact the uh, eligibility for certain types of medications, like um, additional pills that patients with hormone-positive breast cancer may be eligible for. So uh, moving on into the treatment of breast cancer in young women, the role of biomarkers and genetic testing varies depending on if it's an early stage breast cancer or if it's an advanced or metastatic breast cancer. All, young, all patients under the age of 50 are eligible for genetic testing, at least in the United States. Um, this genetic testing uh, certainly will include the most common breast cancer-causing genes, which are the BRCA genes, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Uh, but more and more we're doing multi-panel testing to look for less common genes uh, that can inform different types of treatment. Genetic testing uh, in early-stage breast cancer, the most important impact that's going to have on treatment is on surgical choice. So if you have a, a genetic mutation that increases your risk for additional breast cancers, that may be a reason that a patient would opt for a bilateral mastectomy uh, even if they only have a unilateral cancer. Um, in general, gene genetic testing, the presence of, um, of a heritable gene doesn't influence uh, systemic therapy or medication treatments, except in certain situations of um, triple negative breast cancer or high-risk hormone-positive breast cancer with, with positive lymph nodes, and I'll, I'll kind of go into that shortly. Um, the other thing that's very important, a very important consideration for our young patients is fertility considerations. So a lot of the medications that we give for breast cancer can cause ovarian suppression, uh, which may be a desired outcome or an intentional outcome. Um, and so we uh, uniformly offer young women consultations with fertility specialists, reproductive endocrinologists to talk about the potential for egg banking uh, or freezing your eggs so that um, you preserve the ability to have children later on. Um, and then also uh, discussions of, around preventing pregnancy during treatments because many of the medications would be toxic during, during pregnancy. Um, we do have data within the last few years that it is safe to have to get pregnant uh, after treatment for breast cancer. Um, and then so there is some early data now uh, that interrupting, horm interrupting hormone treatment. So, so we, we, we treat most women for at least five years with hormone medications if they have hormone-positive breast cancer, that interrupting treatment after a year and a half or two years and allowing somebody to get pregnant um, at least has short-term safety. So. Um, Pregnancy considerations, fertility considerations are things that sh should definitely be discussed early on uh, with your oncologist when starting on a treatment plan for breast cancer. Um, so moving, uh, just a quick overview for each of the types of breast cancer. Uh, for early stage, triple negative breast cancer, these are ones that are not hormonal, hormonally driven. Most patients will get preoperative chemotherapy. There isn't any specific biomarker that's going to impact treatment. All except the smallest tumors are going to be eligible for immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy. Uh, that's given for uh, several months before, uh, for several months, and then uh, surgery is done. And the type of medicine that would be offered after surgery is going to depend on the response to the upfront type of treatment. So if the cancer is gone, um, then less less additional medicine may be recommended or no additional medication may be recommended if there is still residual cancer in the breast after that chemotherapy. This is where some additional chemo pills may be recommended. And in the case of patients who are BRCA mutation carriers, they would be eligible for a, a medicine called Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, a type of chemo pill that works, takes advantage of the the way that BRCA mutations increase the risk of cancer and, and make uh, those tumors particularly susceptible to that medicine. HER2 positive breast cancers, uh, most of these also will get preoperative chemotherapy along with HER2 targeted therapy uh, before they have surgery. 
Uh, and then after surgery, the types of medicine that would be given are, is going to vary depending on whether you have a complete response or um, if there is still residual cancer. In hormone-positive breast cancer, this is where there is um, still some, you know, not necessarily uh, uniformly uniform practices. If you have uh, a lymph node negative cancer based on the imaging, the majority of those patients will go for surgery first. And then uh, there is uh, genomic testing uh, that we do on the tumor after surgery. One of these is called the Oncotype score or the 21 gene recurrence score. Uh, and that's used to determine the chemotherapy benefit. Uh, if the score comes back low uh, in a lymph node negative patient, then we typically will not recommend chemotherapy, but we will recommend at least five years of hormone-based medications. This may or may not include stopping the periods, uh, so inducing basically a, a, a temporary state of menopause for those five years uh, in addition to a daily pill. Um, for women who have high-risk uh, oncotype scores that are lymph node negative, they will be recommended to get chemotherapy before they start the hormone-based medication. Uh, for women who want to preserve their fertility, we can offer medications like lupulide or um, gosarelin that are injections that can kind of that suppress the ovaries and make them less susceptible to the effects of chemotherapy uh, and can preserve ovarian function uh, down the road. For women who are, have positive lymph nodes and are hormone positive, um, some of these patients may be recommended for chemotherapy before surgery. Others may have their surgery first so that we can determine how many lymph nodes are positive, which may play a role. Oncotype testing can be done in women who have hormone-positive, lymph node-positive breast cancer, but the data shows that there is a benefit to chemotherapy really regardless of what that score is if you have lymph nodes positive. Uh, what we don't know in those cases is, is that because of the direct effect of chemotherapy on killing cancer cells, or is there a, um, is, there a um, is, is the effect indirect because of the effect on the ovaries? Uh, in metastatic breast cancer, um, genetic uh, next generation sequencing precision medicine biomarkers is going to be much more important. Um, PDL1 testing for immunotherapy and triple negative breast cancer. Um, gene testing of the tumor for different mutations in hormone-positive breast cancer. And then quickly, I want to touch on pregnancy, um, treatment of breast cancer during pregnancy. Um, there are special considerations. We can treat breast cancer dur um, dur safely during pregnancy. We just have to time certain things, so um, we wouldn't give any chemotherapy in the first trimester. Um, surgery can be safe. Uh, and there are certain types of chemotherapy that are known to be safe during pregnancy. So we, uh, it's a multidisciplinary approach um, with maternal fetal medicine, the surgeons, and the medical oncologists uh, to optimize timing of administration of different medicines, timing of surgery, and the timing of the delivery. Um, clinical trials are always a great option for all patients, but particularly for younger, younger patients because their tumors tend to be more uh, more aggressive compared to similar tumors in older patients. Um, clinical trials, uh, it's always important to ask your, your medical oncologist if there are any clinical trials that you're eligible for, um, any new data that could lead to potential treatment options. There is a global clinical trial called iSPY, which is available uh, at multiple centers throughout the United States and several centers around the world, which is looking at incorporating new medications, novel therapeutics in preoperative therapy for breast cancer. Uh, and young women are really great candidates for this type of uh, clinical trial. Uh, and then finishing up with preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, neuropathy, and pain, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve the, the sort of hormonal effects uh, for my, my colleague who's speaking next, but uh, this is where you just work with your treatment team and uh, make sure that you have nausea medications on hand for any for chemotherapy that may cause nausea, um, that you have a game plan for managing pain either related to surgery or to chemotherapy or uh, uh, bone marrow stimulating medications, 
for neuropathy prevention. We are recommending now a lot of our women um, ice their hands and feet. Um, there are mitts that are available um, that uh, it's kind of the same idea as the, the as cold capping uh, for hair preservation, where you kind of constrict the blood vessels in the fingers and toes, and that uh, leads to um, less risk of neuropathy and nerve irritation. Um, but this it's really important to manage um, to work with your care team and make sure that you are you know what to expect and that you're prepared uh, to, to 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 manage all of these things that can come up during your treatment. Um, so I think I went over a few minutes. I apologize for that, but I'm hap I'll be happy to take questions at the end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Metro. That was a superb presentation, really stellar. And I really did, and you also did, um, you were the first speaker, and you really set the stage for the program today. So I want to thank you so much for just a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. So thank you, thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker, is Dr. Uh, uh, Sharon Bober, and Dr. Bober is an institute psychologist, Department of Psycho-Oncology and Palliative Care, Director, Sexual Health Program, Associate Professor, Department of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Bober will be addressing unique issues for younger women living with breast cancer, quality of life concerns, sexual health, pregnancy, and fertility issues, tips to deal with vaginal dryness and premature menopause, practical and emotional coping tips, and follow-up care. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bober. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for this kind invitation, and Dr. Matro, it's really nice to be with um, all of you today uh, to talk about this topic, which is um, really near and dear to my heart, because we know that um, there are really a range of uh, unique issues um, for younger women in particular who are, uh, you know, after uh, diagnosis with breast cancer and treatment. And um, as Dr. Matro was was talking about, you know, um, treatments are often complex. Um, young women often are, uh, you know, likely to develop more aggressive types of breast cancer and often receive more intensive treatments. So that is often a combination of, um, uh, you know, surgery and chemotherapy. And as Dr. Mitchell was talking about, a hormone therapy, often with, you know, ovarian function suppressed for, for many years. Um, and, and what we know is that in the, both in the short term and in the long term, um, younger survivors are more likely to really struggle um, both with sort of medical and the sort of psychosocial, um, I would say, side effects um, of that treatment compared to, um, you know, sort of older, older women. So I really want to, um, can I outline some of the specific types of concerns, which we know are often uh, common, and really, more importantly, um, talk a little bit about some of the strategies and, um, and tools that people should be thinking about. So, um, you know, very directly, I think it's important just to address this issue that uh, well, just to sort of acknowledge that there are there are side effects that come from you know breast cancer itself, and then from the sort of the treatments that we bring to bear to address that. Um, and and again, they really range from you know kind of physical sexual health, sexual function, to you know in menopause and weight gain, um, to the kind of psychological mental health issues that people are thinking about. Um, and the fact is, for younger women, because of where people are in terms of age and stage of development, um, you know, whether it's fertility and family planning or whether it's dating and relationship building um, or whether it's, you know, employment and productivity in the context of having young children or also having to take care of older parents while you have young kids or, you know, all the kinds of things that are sort of just more stressful um, when people are younger um, are often really on kind of the front burner for so many of our of our younger patients, um, and the reality is I, I don't need to to say this to anybody without sort of it being somewhat obvious that these these struggles really affect quality of life, um, and that um, both the impact uh, may be short term, um, but we also know that the impact from some of these side effects are really long term um, and often need to be addressed because they do not, uh, they don't resolve by themselves. 
Um, so, you know, certainly when we think about um, these questions of uh, sort of sexual health, pregnancy, and fertility, sort of a sort of a big category, um, I really want to underscore the point that certainly, um, at least over the last 15 years, um, there are international guidelines which which strongly recommend that every person um, get onco-fertility counseling sort of as early as possible in their treatment, um, you know, irrespective of what type of breast cancer or what stage of disease, and, and that should be something that is available to everyone. Um, we also know that that's not a perfect recipe, and sometimes um, individuals do not get that counseling, um, although I think that is becoming um, more the sort of standard for everyone. Um, what we also know is that when we do uh, sort of large-scale surveys of looking at um, reproductive and sexual health broadly for young women, um, we know that the majority of people are much more likely to hear about um, fertility, fertility preservation, than they are to hear about um, sexuality. So um, I am going to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, the sexuality and sexual health piece because I think that is uh, a topic that often folks get um, much less attention um, to um, and is not something that is sort of, I would say, rolled into care quite as much as we see um, we, that we now have focus, focus on um, oncofertility. So, you know, thinking um, broadly about uh, sexual health, I want to sort of just comment that this is really not just um, a physical experience. Um, the experience of sexuality and sexual health is really at the intersection of biology, psychology, and relationships, um, and all of those domains can be strongly impacted by cancer treatment um, and cancer side effects. So this is to say that um, often when, um, for example, people hear about um, this issue of going into menopause, whether it's short-term or long-term, while people are on hormone therapy, for example, or uh, maybe go through chemotherapy-induced uh, menopause, you know, people often hear, if anything, a, a couple of pieces to the puzzle, but often don't hear the whole picture. So I really want to kind of step back and give people a little bit of that whole person perspective. Um, again, you know, when we think about um, in general, what happens when people go through um, any kind of uh, ovarian function suppression and there's a significant loss of, of estrogen, we know that has a big impact. Um, it, it, is clearly, uh, it is clearly one of the major strategies we use to keep cancer um, away or from returning. Um, but we also know that it has a big impact on um, two sort of broad sort of perspectives, one we think of as what are called the vasomotor symptoms of menopause and one are called the genitourinary symptoms of menopause. So um, one of the, the pieces that I think is important to sort of be aware of is that um, when um, people are having significant um, distressing or disruptive side effects from menopause, um, it is really important to speak with your doctor and ask uh, or for your team to ask where you can go to get some help because these um, side effects can be not just a nuisance but really disruptive and related to other things, right? When you are um, having hot flashes and night flashes and you're not getting good sleep, it affects your mood, right? These things all work in tandem. Um, when you're not getting good sleep and you don't have good energy, you're also not really interested in sexuality so uh, or, or sexual activity. So, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that many of these things sort of work together and we need to, in concert, and we really need to address these symptoms in tandem. Um, in terms of the genitourinary symptoms of menopause, I want to um, really comment on this because I think, if anything, um, individuals may hear providers say, uh, you may, you know, there may be uh, some vaginal dryness, use a lubricant. Um, and what we notice is that for m most young women, um, that is not adequate. Um, and people often feel that there's um, significant damage and they're not really sure what to do. So just to be clear, um, I think every young woman who is um, going through breast cancer treatment needs to be um, aware and knowledgeable about how to maintain, um, I would say, good vaginal or genital health. Um, that is whether you are sexually active 
or not. Um, I think it's just as important to be aware of that so you do not, for example, have discomfort with a GYN exam or you are not prone to urinary symptoms um, as much as uh, this is also to do with sexual activity. Um, and what that means is that we need to be thinking about restoring um, both moisture to the genital tissue, but we also have to make sure that uh, pH is balanced, that women still have um, elasticity or stretch to that genital tissue. Um, if we lose stretch to that tissue or loss of elasticity, which is what can happen with estrogen loss, um, any kind of sexual activity can be uncomfortable. Um, we also know that women lose some blood flow to that tissue. So in general, um, what I'm saying is that it's important to think about vaginal health the way we might think about bone health or cardiac health. Again, it's just sort of a part of the body that we really need to just be paying attention to. And I say that also because um, when women have what's called vaginal atrophy, that's sort of, again, the sort of the constellation of symptoms that I'm describing on the other side of, of menopause, um, we know that these symptoms don't get better by themselves. So it is very important to be able to make sure you have the right um, kind of roadmap for what to do. Um, I will just comment quickly that um, when we think about dealing with vaginal dryness, we know, for example, that using a lubricant, although can be helpful for reducing friction during sexual activity, um, lubricants do not actually hold water in the tissue. Um, they're actually not going to adequately address vaginal dryness, especially if women are on hormone therapies uh, like an aromatase inhibitor. So very important to be familiar with uh, the class of products that are called vaginal moisturizers. These are products that are specifically formulated to hold water in that genital tissue. Um, there are over-the-counter moisturizing products that are uh, non-hormonal. We also have a growing body of literature showing that uh, use of um, vaginal estrogen, which um, is just local to the genital tissue, is also very effective at treating um, the uh, kind of genitourinary symptoms of menopause. And that is something that, um, again, we have a growing uh, literature to show that the use of local vaginal estrogen is, uh, is safe and I would say um, very important to be able to speak directly uh, with your oncologist or your oncology team if you have questions about that. Um, but most importantly, um, if anybody is having any kind of discomfort, itching, chafing, burning with or without sexual activity, um, it is just really important to get some help and support for how to address those issues because over time those issues tend to get worse. They do not get better by themselves. Um, we also know that uh, in general for younger women, um, you know, it's not surprising that people are often feeling, as I said, an enormous amount of just general stress, anxiety, some um, often sort of acute distress or depression um, after diagnosis. People are often worried about recurrence. People are often worried about um, what's going to happen over time. And, you know, the other thing I'll just notice is that, or note with the audience, that most young women feel pretty isolated in this, right? Um, the average age for uh, when women get breast cancer most of the time is, is much older. So often it is the case that younger women feel somewhat isolated because they don't really have peers to, 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 who are going through this experience. Um, and when, you know, especially when we're struggling and feeling isolated, it's a bit of a recipe for more distress. So, you know, when we think about kind of what the kind of um, sort of next steps are, um, I think it is critically important um, to make sure that um, people have the kind of um, practical and emotional tools um, available to be able to sort of help people get to the next step. Um, in general, we know that social support, relying on either um, partner support, family and friends is probably the most commonly relied on coping strategy. Um, we also know that exercise, for example, um, is a very common strategy that really allows people to feel both sort of stronger in their bodies and also sort of um, mentally uh, sort of gives them a greater sense of fortitude. But what I would say is that there isn't um, one trick or tip that works for everybody, but what's more important than anything is to be able to sort of take some uh, time to really sort of assess 
what it is that you need, right? Um, people really have different needs, and sometimes though those are more practical, right? Whether that is um, juggling uh, childcare, whether that's figuring out how to manage, you know, aging parents and school-aged children at the same time, um, whether that's really just figuring out how to manage the financial. Um, burden of, of, of losing work or missing work, um, you know, it is important just to sort of be able to identify what the stressors are um, in order to then be able to start to brainstorm about what you can do to get some help. Um, and again, I think that um, what we know is that most people need support. Um, this is not something that anyone can do by themselves. And when we really think about having to kind of get through this, um, it really does take a village, and that is a reasonable metaphor. So um, in general, what I would say is that um, in terms of follow-up care, you know, what I, what I would encourage anyone to consider is that um, when you do sort of an inventory for yourself and you sort of think about what it is that is distressing or bothersome, um, if it's bothersome to you, then it's worth getting some attention. Um, there is no issue um, with a, a list of what is or isn't important. And so, you know, so for example, if, you, if your team is not bringing up the issues around sexual health, it's not because these are problems that cannot be addressed, but it might not be on their mind, it might not be on their agenda, and this is where it's important to be able to advocate to bring up the topic, to say to your team, you know, I know that this might be not, this might not be the place, for example, um, that you can help me directly, but can you help me figure out who I can talk to? Um, is there a menopause specialist available? Is there somebody that I can work with to be able to help me address these issues? So um, I would say being active in a kind of a proactive way around um, one, identifying what you need, and two, figuring out where you need to go to get some help is probably the most important framework uh, for moving forward. So on that note, I'll stop, um, and I'm happy to, to take some questions. Thank you. Oh, th thank you very much, Dr. Bober. That was really outstanding, just a stellar presentation, covering a lot of topics that often aren't addressed in workshops, and so I'm really delighted that you were able to cover them, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, um, so, so thank you so much, and um, thanks. And our, our next speaker is Ms. Jennifer Pietra, and she's our bilingual oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she'll be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and she'll also be discussing our Hopeline and our website in terms of getting information. Um, it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. LaPietra. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It is an honor to participate in today's program. My name is Jennifer LaPietra, and I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and potential financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive resources to individuals and families impact, impacted by a cancer diagnosis. A breast cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis and may be addressed through psychosocial supportive services. Making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed in counseling with an oncology social worker or by participating in a support group. Joining a support group may be a way of connecting with others going through similar experiences who understand what you encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers several breast cancer-specific support groups online. The Breast Cancer Online Support Group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, provide practical information about treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with one's medical team and loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who provide support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. 
you can register for an online support group through cancercare.org by selecting Our Services, then Support Groups. After completing the registration process on our website, members can participate by posting in the groups 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals may also experience practical and financial concerns throughout treatment, and it may be helpful to discuss your concerns with your medical providers. It may also be helpful to speak with an oncology social worker, patient navigator, and the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available for you. Cancer Care's resource navigation offer a short-term, strengths-based approach to both patients and caregivers. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. On Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, you will find a wide array of reading material and information related to breast cancer, as well as stories of help and hope. If you're interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers. Our oncology social workers are trained on how a breast cancer diagnosis can impact an individual as well as their loved ones. Please know we are here to offer you support throughout your experience. Thank you for your attention and opportunity to speak in this informative program. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. LaPietra. That was an outstanding presentation and wonderful resources for our participants. And um, we will be providing, and this may come up also during the Q&A, um, any information that was given out, like website or, um, or a telephone line to call, um, we'll be providing all that in the SurveyMonkey evaluation, um, and you'll get that in a couple of days after the program, so um, so that you all have that information at your fingertips. It's really important. So now we're on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Rob to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Rob. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a question um, for um, Dr. Metro. Um, Dr. Metro mentioned possible chemo treatment after the first trimester for pregnant women. Which chemo might be possibly given and what studies have been completed to look at the short and long-term effects of these treatments on infants? Um, so that's a great question. Um, we we can't do the highest quality studies that we would like for this kind of question where half the women get a drug and the other half don't and then you see over time what happens. These are more observational studies um, and most of the, the data is, is old. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, safety information about some of the new drugs that we have on the market. Um, but uh, the, the standardly accepted medicines that we that we know are safe based on just years of observational data is um, adriamycin and cytoxan. So adriamycin is um, affectionately known as the red devil. Um, so that those can be safely given. Um, there's we we historically hadn't given um, paclitaxel uh, during pregnancy, but um, based on some evidence from the ovarian cancer. Uh, world, um, it is now accepted that uh, if necessary that can be done. Um, very important medicines that we don't give during pregnancy because we know about the risks to the fetus are uh, trastuzumab or Herceptin. Um, that can cause uh, problems with the fetus, so we don't do that. Um, we also don't like to give growth factors, so medicines like Nulasta or Nupagen. Um, are not, um, we, we, we tend to avoid, and so um, we, uh, we have to adjust the scheduling of the chemotherapy uh, accordingly for that. Um, so we time the chemo, that can be given safely in the second and third trimester, although we, we try to stop chemotherapy at least a few weeks before um, either the, the ter term, uh, the end of uh, pregnancy, or when the patient is going to be induced so that blood counts and immune system have recovered 
uh, in time to allow uh, the mother to deliver the baby safely. Excellent. Thank you so much, and great question and great answer as well. Um, so there's um, a question um, for, I think, Dr. Demetra, with, um, with trying to preserve eggs, aren't patients given hormones to stimulate multiple eggs to mature for harvest? How do we address this risk? Yeah, another great question. Um, so our uh, reproductive endocrinology uh, colleagues have developed uh, protocols that utilize medications like letrozole, which is one of the anti-estrogen medicines that we use uh, for women who have hormone-positive breast cancer. So they can, they, you're right that it, we do give hormones to stimulate the egg growth, um, but by giving the letrozole concurrently, we can kind of prevent really high spikes of estrogen. Um, so we don't typically see, you know, in the two to three weeks that it will take um, to, to complete an egg harvesting cycle, um, we don't see rapid growth of cancers, even hormone-positive cancers. Question um, for Dr. Bover about dealing with vaginal dryness, um, if you could comment on this a little bit more. Just say a little bit more about how to deal with that, yes. Dr. Major? Okay. Yes. Um, so I think the, the key about vaginal dryness is that, um, as I said, it doesn't get better by itself. Um, Over-the-counter um, lubricant does not really address vaginal dryness. Vaginal dryness really needs to be addressed by use of um, something that we think of uh, as a vaginal moisturizer. So lots of women are familiar with putting moisturizers on their face before they go to bed at night or on their hands or skin in the wintertime. Um, there are products that specifically, like other moisturizers, are formulated to hold water in that vaginal tissue. Um, I will just uh, comment that, you know, vaginal moisturizers, uh, whether they are over-the-counter non-hormonal or whether they are something like uh, vaginal estrogen, are very effective at um, relieving dryness. But I will, the, the additional comment I just want to make is that um, when people have um, discomfort or pain with sexual activity, um, often the answer is not only about vaginal dryness, um, but what can happen is that people often have um, sort of other pieces that are related to that. So um, when, when tissue gets very dry and when we don't have a lot of um, estrogen in the system, we can also lose um, sort of stretch or elasticity to that genital tissue. We lose some blood flow to that tissue. Um, and what I just want to comment on is that if people are um, using a moisturizer, for example, noticing that dryness is a little better, but they are still having discomfort with or without sexual activity, it does not mean that the moisturizer isn't working. What it means is that they may need to have some additional support to figure out, for example, how to, um, you know, how to get some stretch back to that tissue, how to sort of make sure that that tissue is more elastic or stretchy. That's one thing. Um, the other thing I will also just point out is that often moisturizers are not used appropriately or adequately. So most women on an aromatase inhibitor, for example, um, really need to use a moisturizer probably uh, three to four times a week, not once or twice a week. So for example, often people will say, I tried it and it didn't work, and we know that it's because they're not using it um, frequently enough. Um, we also know that women need to moisturize the internal and external tissue, so the vulva, the outside, the, the tissue around the opening, what's called the vestibule uh, of the, the opening of the vagina, um, needs to be moisturized, um, not just uh, internally. So, uh, you know, some of these um, are, are sort of nuances, they're sort of minor points, but it really makes a difference in terms of being able to get the full benefit um, from, from using these products. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And a question from one of our other participants, Dr. Matro. I've read if a woman develops breast cancer within six years of having a child, it significantly affects her prognosis. Is this correct? What early detection methods should be implemented by OBGYNs for our new moms? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to separate out exactly whether the timing after is, is it the timing after pregnancy that affects increased risk or is it just the 
that the woman is younger age, and we know that that younger women um, tend to have more aggressive forms of breast cancer compared to postmenopausal women. Um, and because they're not getting screened, um, or if they're breastfeeding, um, we there's a chance that the cancer may be found at a, at a higher stage um, where it's bigger in the breast or has gone to the lymph nodes. Um, I think the most important thing is being up to date on your mammograms, getting appropriate screening, asking your doctor if you're eligible for enhanced screening like with MRIs. Um, there's also a lot of uh, misinformation about there about whether you can get mammograms while you're breastfeeding. Um, and the answer is yes, you can. Um, the, you can the, the recommendation ideally is to either nurse or pump right before the mammogram so that you uh, have emptied your breasts as much as possible. Um, there can be lactational changes that are seen and it may not be um, as sensitive a study as if you were not breastfeeding, but um, particularly now with recommendations to breastfeed for up to two years, um, we'd rather you be getting your mammograms yearly than, than delaying for two years uh, in that period of time. And another question for um, Dr. Metro. If a woman is taking an aromatase inhibitor with ovarian suppression, is it safe for her to use vaginal estrogen? What about vaginal ring? Are these measures safe if she is on tamoxifen? Yeah, so this is... Um, this is a question we get a lot uh, because we're, we deal with, because those medicines, the aromatase inhibitors, the, the ovarian suppression causes vaginal dryness and some women don't get enough relief from the non-hormonal um, treatments that Dr. Bover was talking about. Um, there have been some studies looking at this. Um, there is some mixed results out there. Um, in terms of the risks uh, or safety of vaginal estrogen. Um, the higher quality studies um, that have a little less kind of cloudy picture and um, just better follow-up show that there, there probably is not a significantly increased risk of breast cancer recurrence if you use vaginal estrogen. Um, it's mostly a local effect in the vagina. Um, there is some systemic absorption, but it's um, the data doesn't show that it consistently increases the risk of breast cancer recurrence. So we typically will have patients try some of the non-hormonal options first, and if they still have uh, symptoms with the non-hormonal uh, vaginal lubricants, then we will um, prescribe vaginal estrogen. Um, we'll recommend that they use the the smallest amount, the smallest dose, as dose as infrequently as possible, so once or twice a week. Um, and in my mind, you know, vaginal dryness and um, painful intercourse and recurrent UTIs, which are all associated with vaginal dryness, are uh, significant quality of life issues. And if it means that my patient is going to either take the vaginal estrogen and stay on her hormone therapy for the full recommended course versus stop her recommended treatment early because the side effects are too bad, I would rather uh, support her in managing the side effects than have her um, stop her treatment early. And a question from Ms. LaPietra, if you could say a little bit more about the support groups and how you join them. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we offer online support groups for all of our national clients that call in. You can do that via the Hope Line at 800-813-4673 and speak to any of the oncology social workers that pick up your call. You can also explore more on our website at cancercare.org. Uh, essentially, the groups are closed groups. And so what that means is the social worker who facilitates the group does screen all of the members into the group. And they run for 15 weeks. Because it's an online format, you do have 24-hour, seven-day-a-week access to the group so that you can read and post based on what your concerns are, uh, ask questions, if you need to vent. Um, it's a safe space um, to, to learn ways to cope and to connect in a meaningful way with others that can understand what you're going through and can really give you that support. Thank you so much for your question. Thanks, thanks so much. Thank you for your answer. Thank you. Excellent. Um, 
And um, and now I'm just going to ask all of our speakers to provide um, just some takeaways. Um, so we'll start with Dr. Metro, then Dr. Bober, then Ms. Uh, LaPietra. Um, so um, just a, a minute takeaway that you'd like people to take away from today's program. So Dr. Metro. Oh, sure. Um, I think it's just important to know as a young woman going through breast cancer that there are unique issues that you may face and it's important to talk about even some of the harder, you know, issues like sexual dysfunction and um, vaginal symptoms and concerns about fertility and pregnancy. Um, some providers aren't necessarily going to bring them up and so it's really important that you address them, make sure that you have confidence in your care team and comfort in discussing some of these things and know that the majority of breast cancer patients even young patients are cured when their cancers are caught early. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Bober. Um, I think I would, I really would want to just underscore the point that um, even if your care team does not bring up some of the uh, more complicated supportive care issues, we might want to call those, so whether that's um, sexual dysfunction, whether that's concern about um, you know, kind of some of the emotional concern issues or, or just sort of coping, um, it does not mean that we don't have good ways to really help people very effectively. And so whether that's, you know, one of the wonderful support groups that I know that you guys do at Cancer Care or whether that's really getting the right people on board to help figure out what you need with sexual dysfunction, whether that's, you know, again, directing you to a pelvic floor physical therapist, whether that's getting you to a menopause specialist, um, these sexual health symptoms don't resolve by themselves, and there is no reason why people really have to suffer um, needlessly. And to Dr. Metro's point, um, managing these side effects is often what allows women to stay on these potentially life-saving treatments. So really important to be able to address all of these side effects. Thank you so much. And, and Ms. Pietra. Oh, yes, of course. Um, I would like to stress that going through something like this can be really life-altering and they can be very confusing and overwhelming. And so it's important to really look for where you can get good support. Um, when you're talking with your medical team, maybe bring a notebook or have an app on your phone so that you can take down notes so that you can remember um, and follow through with what they said, as well as ask your questions and whatever answers they might give. And just know that Organizations such as Cancer Care are here to help answer questions and to help you in this journey. You're not alone. Excellent point. Thank you so much. And Pat, um, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants um, for asking such really great questions. And of course, I do want to comment about the questions. So we actually, and, and between all of you, um, the participants and the, uh, those asking questions um, really were able to um, uh, to address a lot of your concerns, but unfortunately we couldn't get to everyone's question. And so um, I would just like to comment on on that aspect of it um, in terms of uh, of the questions. Um, so I'd like you to um, even for those of you who couldn't ask a question, um, I would like you to um, those of you, so I'm like, those of you who asked a question, those of you who, who didn't get to ask a question, and those of you who have a question yet in queue, I want you to know that we'd like you to um, take your question back to your treating healthcare team, because they're the ones who know you the best, and they're the ones who actually um, are the ones who actually are, are best able to help you um, to, um, you know, to actually. I get all the, you know, to, to act, they know your, they know everything about you. And so please, the knowledge you've learned today, take that back to your treating healthcare team. And most importantly, as Ms. LaPietra said, we don't want anyone to feel alone. We want you to know that you're now part of the community support and we are here to help you. And your, your healthcare team consists not only of your oncologist, but also consists of your, um, the whole, met, the whole team, which includes an oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial navigator, patient navigator, just a, a whole host of, of people, sexual navigator, a whole bunch of people who can help you 
um, with your questions and concerns, young adult programs that they have. So please do take advantage of all of those services and ask your doctor the question, and they'll be able to route you to the correct person on your team as well. And you always can contact Cancer Care, of course. Um, and we will be sending you at the, um, in a couple of days a survey monkey evaluation, which will allow you all to um, will allow everybody to to actually um, comment on the program itself, so evaluation of the program. But we'll also give you any resources that we mentioned during the program and others as well that um, would be important for you to have. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish, well, wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.